Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. Rejoining our Tartan Talk series is Dr. Michael Hertzen. Dr. Hertzen recently released a book with Golf Digest, Ron Witten, called Golf in Law. This is a subject that Dr. Hertzen is very passionate about, not only from his work as a golf course architect, but also from serving as an expert witness in more than 150 golf-related trials. We know that you're going to learn something from Dr. Hertzen's experiences in the field designing golf courses and also from his experiences in the courtroom. But before we get going with Dr. Hertzen, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a giant supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have them on board, and we're glad that we were able to bring Dr. Hertzen on the podcast again. Well, Dr. Hertzen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for writing this book. This is a very important topic. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, this is your seventh book. What's harder, writing a book or designing a golf course? (laughs) Uh, Actually, not writing the book, finding all of the illustrations to put in the book. Um, But designing a golf course is far easier than writing the book. And uh, writing the book is far easier than trying to find things to illustrate to points that you're making. Yeah, I think one illustration in the book that really stuck out to me is you found a picture of an alligator scaling a chain link fence. How do you come across stuff like that? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm sort of tuned into those things, and I had heard stories about that happening and uh, had never had really had, uh, had seen it happen. And, um, and then I was going through uh, some pictures actually about some alligator cases, and then I ran across that one. I said, yep, that's got to be in there. But, you know, I think that that's the kind of the issue, too, is that most of us go out onto a golf course, which is a very natural and normal environment. Any, any critter that lived on that land before it became a golf course is more than likely living on it after it becomes a golf course, although it might be at night. And we're just not aware of some of the dangers. If we were out just walking a trail in the middle of a, of a swampy area, we'd be looking for things like alligators. But on a golf course, you don't think about it. Uh, or you don't think about them being as a big a threat to your uh, security. A few years ago, I had the fortune of uh, visiting FarmLinks, which was a project that you were involved in. And before I start my work days, Dr. Hertz, and I like to go for a run. And I remember seeing some of the snake signs around FarmLinks, and I kind of do my runs sometimes in darkness before the workday begins. Uh, that got me thinking, like, you talk a lot about signage in the book. What's the balance between putting up the appropriate number of signs and maybe putting up too many signs and potentially scaring a customer or a member? I had uh, people say that uh, there's such a thing as sign pollution, and maybe there is, but um, I, if I were to err, I would certainly err on those things that uh, would warn people rather than have someone injured. But there are creative ways of making signs uh, without necessarily uh, scaring people. And as I point out in the, in the book, one of the good things about, or one of the things about good signage is, is that you can use graphic symbols. I mean, we see it on highways all the time. And um, there, there are ways to, to use a graphic symbol that makes people think a little bit about it without being, you know, caution. Uh, you know, you may be attacked by a snake in the next, you know, 50 feet. Is that something you think about as the, the golf course architect? Do you think about potential spots for critter critters and how the course is going to handle that? I, yes, I do. 
And, um, and if we think that there is any kind of a uh, potential, we certainly call that out. And Lord knows we see all of those critters out there when we're working on the golf course or doing the routing of it. And, um, and again, all of those guys may leave during construction, but they'll come back once the golf course is finished. Yeah, in the book you tell the story of a superintendent who I believe works in Southeast Asia that would see co- cobras in the bunkers. Yeah, we got. I arrived there early one morning uh, to ride around with him, and I noticed that he went to uh, every single bunker and looked into it. And finally, I, I asked him, I said, Adam, what are we looking for? And he goes, cobras. I went, cobras? And he goes, yeah, they come out of the tall grass uh, out on the golf course at night, and uh, sometimes if it's a cool evening, the sand radiates that warmth, and they like the warmth, and they'll just stay there. So we said, we just make sure that all the cobras are out of the – bunkers before the golfers go out obviously this book is about way more than critters what convinced you to write a book about this topic and when did you first realize that there's a giant link between golf and law well i think what caused me to write it is is that i saw so little concern from people uh regarding safety security and risk management of golf courses and you, as you know, Guy, I teach a lot of classes, and uh, I would do like a pre-course survey of people to kind of find out their knowledge level. And I'd always add in the question, you know, how many uh, of you are have an active, how many of your courses have an active safety uh, committee management program? And what I found was is less than 40% of the golf course of the golf course superintendents that were in my class even knew what a safety committee was, let alone how it should function. And uh, so that set off alarm bells. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, I would probably get a call a week from an attorney asking me to be an expert witness. And I don't do very many. I've done 160 over 40 years, but I don't do very many. But uh, I do get a lot of calls from attorneys. And so I know there's a lot of issues and there's a lot of lawsuits involving golf, and uh, that's what caused me to write the book. Is it's golf and safety, security, and risk management of golf courses is not taught in any turf program, and it's something that you have to be mentored in or you have to want to study it and learn it. And so I really felt that uh, there needed to be take my experiences and put them into a book uh, that could be a starting point. And let me add, Guy, that I had been trying to put this together for a while, but Ron Witten and I got in a discussion one day, and uh, as you know, Ron was the editor for this book and was a prosecuting attorney before he became the golf architecture editor for Golf Digest. And Ron said, Mike, you really have got to write this book. Uh, It is imperative that you get it out. And so as I was writing it and we were editing it, um, about every two or three weeks, I get another email from Ron that said, Mike, I just visited several golf courses where they need your book badly, so let's get it out. So you worked with Ron at Aaron Hills, and you and him have known each other for decades. What was it like working on a, a book with him and doing this type of project with somebody that's so well-versed in the written word? Well, I think that um, the the thing... Ron and I have a great mutual respect, and um, he is undoubtedly a a great wordsmith. Um, He's a very bright guy that looks at things differently than I do, 
and uh, I knew what my experiences were, and and it really took Ron to help me organize those. One of the things that uh, Ron and I talk about is, um, uh, as he is an editor, he said, he sent, in one time, Guy, he sent me 17 pages of corrections, 17 pages uh, of corrections, and um, a lot of people would be affronted by that, and I'm not at all, and um uh, he said, Mike, he said, I'm glad to see you're taking it this way because he goes, as a golf writer, I get edited all the time. And, uh, and as a golf course architect, we get criticized all the time. And so it's just a matter of, of saying, evaluating in your own mind, uh, is this comment valid or not? Uh, is that something we need to change? And in Ron's case, I would say 90% of his comments were valid enough that I made the changes. Well, 17 pages of corrections. He's a much tougher editor than I am. I guess when you're doing a book, it's like designing a golf course. You have to have a pretty thick skin throughout the process. Uh, you absolutely do. And again, that the first time through, that was the third edit or fourth edit of that book, by the way. And, um, and we got down to whether words ought to have been hyphenated or not or uh, the kinds of English sorts of things. And Ron is a perfectionist and wanted the book to be perfect, whereas I would have probably said, you know, what's the difference whether it's, you know, par three hyphenated or not? Um, for him, that was an important thing because he said, you know, you, you want this book to be as perfect as you can make it and beyond criticism. And uh, so I didn't mind at all, and uh, I appreciated it. And I've told Ron repeatedly, I appreciate that he would spend the time to be that intense on that book. How do you balance writing a book with your duties running a golf course architecture firm? Is it just carving out some time each day for the book, or did you devote um, extended periods to it? Um, it, it would go in spurts. Um, I uh, read a lot, like you do, and um, the kinds of things that I read are um, Internet articles or uh, golf-related Internet articles from different sources. And I started to notice that there were a lot of lawsuits that were being mentioned. And I read a lot of law um, websites as well. And the ones that were related to golf, I would just download a copy uh, of the article. And then I started to put these things together in some sort of what I hoped would be an orderly format. And so it was a matter of accumulating them. And then in the wintertime, when I wasn't making field visits, I would go in the library and just spend hours and hours writing and rewriting trying to organize these materials that I'd collected along with my own experiences and what I know to be practical. And that's what I was really trying to do with the book was to make it a really a practical, usable book for not just golf course superintendents or managers or owners, but even golfers. You mentioned early in the book your experiences being a expert witness. How did you get involved in that? And what type of work and research and preparation does it take when you know you're going to step into the courtroom? Wow, that's really a good question. The reason that I first got involved as an expert witness was because a golf course that Jack Kidwell, who was my mentor, and I designed back in the early 70s, uh, was sued by an adjoining property owner, and um, we were asked to be witnesses to come into court. And there are so many myths about golf courses uh, that people fall into that, uh, and one of those myths being that, you know, if there's an existing golf course and then you buy a house on an existing golf course and you have problems with golf balls, 
uh, that that's just too bad, you don't have any rights. Well, in this particular case, we had designed the golf course. They had sold a house lot next to it. person had built a house, complained about golf balls. It went to court, and the judge basically said, this will become a a 17-hole golf course until you can decide how to protect this person's property. So it dispelled the myth that if the golf course was there first, then you had some sort of superior rights over an adjoining property owner. And at that point, I got thinking, wow, maybe there are other things like that as well. And, um, and in fact, there was a 17-hole golf course until they solved how to, you know, we played it as a par three, so it wouldn't be a 17. We took a four and made it a three. Um, and, um, and then they finally came to an amicable agreement and then went from there. But it started really as one of the golf courses that we had designed uh, being sued and us going into court and me seeing the power of the court to literally shut down a golf hole that really got me thinking about it along with all the other myths that are out there about golf courses. Given how many of these cases you've been involved in and how long you've been doing it, it's probably inevitable that you've run into people you've known in the courtroom. How do you handle the emotions of those situations? And how do you take emotion out of it? Yes, you know, and uh, we just have to deal with the fact. You asked me earlier, uh, Guy, and I skipped over the question about how do we prepare. I prepare by studying as much as I can in related topics. And I, I have to really, I'm an expert witness trying to give uh, an unbiased opinion based on the facts to the best of my technical knowledge, experience, training uh, as a golf course architect. And so when I have a, a colleague or a peer who is on the other side of the table or the other side of the bench uh, offering his opinion, um, I have no problem with it. It, any, it is no less disrespect or friendship or anything else between that and as I explain it uh, is you know I love my wife to death my wife is you know my heart and soul but that doesn't mean that we don't disagree on things and and that's sort of the way I feel about uh, professional colleagues as well I love you to death man but that doesn't mean that I think you're right all the time and I'll present my opinion you present your opinion and we'll let the judge or jury decide how have your experiences as, as an expert witness and your time spent in courtrooms influenced your subsequent design decisions on your own projects? Oh, my goodness. It, it has shaped them from the, from the 1970s, early 1970s. It started to shape how we design golf courses. And even now, uh, we are so cognizant of the safety and the security aspects of golf courses is that we'll refuse to take a project that we don't think is safe or can't be safely um, uh, mitigated in some way. And um, particularly with remodeling projects, newer projects, you can always find a way to make things reasonably safe. And you can't make them 100% safe, but you need to make them safe enough that if you have to go to court to defend the decisions that you've made at a designer, that you're very comfortable doing that. And I tend to work in that 92% range of comfort. Um, I can pretty well predict, you know, where 92% of the golf balls are going to go based on studies that I've done over the last 30 or 40 years. 
uh, and in addition to what the RNA and the USGA has done, as well as the fact of my observations of things. And so there are no standards or only guidelines. You have to be able to defend those guidelines. And um, so we have guide, very strict guidelines in this office, and, um, and uh, everybody follows them. And um, we've only had an occasional lawsuit, uh, which in most instances have been thrown out of court. Uh, but um, it is, it's shaped practice entirely. One of the most interesting lines in the book, in my opinion, is, is uh, you say we would rather lose a potential client than be associated with unacceptable risks. Has that philosophy helped or hurt your business over the years? Well, it, it it's hurt and it hurt back in and when the housing development boom was going on, because what we would find is is that developers would try to stuff in as many units as they could, uh, as close as they could, in inside of property, and we were very strict about the safety guidelines that we had and how they were enforced, and we would redline, we would do the design of the golf course, and then they would give it to their land planner, and the land planner would, would put in the housing and the roads and all that, and then we would go through and redline it and say, no, this is unacceptable, you know, we have to change this. or that. And where developers were saying, no, I have to have X number of house lots on this property in order to make it flow, and if you don't want to design the golf course, I'll find someone else. We politely excused ourselves, and they went and found somebody else. And invariably, there were problems with golf balls and housing. And uh, so even though we were vindicated, we didn't get the fee, and we didn't get the client. You know, throughout the book, and you probably have done this throughout your career, and I just noticed it, you don't refer to them as golf carts. You call them golf cars. What type of risks do golf cars present, and why don't you use the term cart? Well, the, the organization of people who make those was the Golf Car Manufacturers Association. It's now called uh, the International Light Terrain Vehicle Association, but it's still the old Golf Car Manufacturers Association. And, um, and so we believe that a golf car should be treated with the same dangerous instrumentality as you would an automobile. And in several states, uh, that is the law, that golf cars are treated as they would be automobiles. You can, you can get a drunk driving uh, ticket uh, for having, uh, being inebriated and operating a golf car. So we believe that because there are no standards or only guidelines, that if we appeal to the standards used by automobiles and cars, particularly in the design of the pathways, is that that provides us a level of protection uh, from lawsuits, and it protects our clients uh, from a level of lawsuits. Uh, I get lots of calls on golf cars and golf car paths and in most instances, it's someone thought that um, they, these were golf carts, uh, which tends to indicate they're more of a recreational vehicle or a fun toy than they are a serious uh, vehicle. And secondly, that you can just about put paths anyway uh, and anywhere and not have to worry about uh, trying to provide all of the safety 
accruedments uh, uh, to it that you really should have in order to make it work properly. When you were doing the research for the book, how frequently did you come up with situations involving golf cars, and could you have done a whole separate book just on incidents related to golf car safety? Yes, I could have done an entirely book on, <laughs> on golf cars and golf car safety. And it's the reoccurring, it's almost a reoccurring theme, too. Um, it's uh, Some things are fluke, and you think there was sort of a fluke accident that, you know, it's like being hit by a meteor. And then you do more research, and you find that it happened again and again and again. And now all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is, it, even though it seems to be a unique situation, no, this is, in fact, a pattern. Dr. Hertzen, what are some things that golf course operators and golf course professionals and golf course superintendents and other people that work at the facilities, what can they do to mitigate risks associated with golf cars? If, if people read the book, and get only one thing out of this book, Guy, it should be that you should have a functioning safety committee. And in the book, I spend a lot of time talking about safety committees. I give lots of references where you can get more detailed information, but you must have a working, functioning safety committee that's empowered uh, to make those changes. Uh, We're talking about big dollar lawsuits when it comes to golf courses. Uh, not always, but typically. And, and having that safety committee really goes a long way into helping a judge and a jury understand that the golf course facility was responsive and was concerned about the safety security of its guest or member or whomever, even trespasser, uh, that it was had, because we all have a duty to protect, we need to demonstrate that duty to protect. And that's the thing that everybody should get out of this, is not the individual cases so much, but rather you must have a functioning safety committee. And that's not the norm, right? I mean, I think you maybe statistically mentioned that it's around 40% of the courses that do? Yes, that's exactly what, when I, when I uh, survey the people who attend my class, uh, who probably are more aggressive superintendents anyway because they're taking advanced classes. I can't even think the number of, of courses or country clubs or clubs that don't have active safety committees. And um, it, um, it, that's probably the biggest weakness in our industry right now, and that could eliminate so many problems by just having safety committees that function as they, are, as they should uh, in a very formal uh, situation. As we all know, there are a ton of golf course renovations and restorations going on right now, and a big part of those renovations and restorations are tree removal. How dangerous are trees on the golf course, but also how beneficial can trees be to safety too? That's a great point, Guy, and Mm -hmm. they are very, very important. uh, to When you remove trees or you add trees, and you change play patterns, uh, all of a sudden you're starting to impact those safety guidelines that the golf hole may be designed on. Um, I give an example in the book where there was a small tree planted uh, to the uh, right side of a golf hole, and then as it got bigger, people were forced to aim further and further left, and finally someone hit one out of bounds and ended up hitting a, a person, and that person lost their eye, uh, from the stray golf ball, 
and the club, even when that happened, was reluctant to cut the tree down because they thought it made for a cute golf hole. Well, when it ended up to be a, a multi-million dollar settlement uh, for the person who was injured, plus changing someone's life, and they were forced to cut the tree down by the court, uh, that's an example of just being the uh, belligerent about keeping a tree that's causing an issue. But moreover, when there are trees that have provided protection for a long period of time and you start removing those trees and open up play areas, uh, all of a sudden you have taken away some of the barriers uh, that people have had for protecting uh, the golf balls, and now you could open that up to potentially another lawsuit. So it's a matter of both of those things, uh, being careful where you plant them, and secondly, uh, guy, just as importantly, where you take them down. Do most architects and superintendents consider safety when they're talking about tree removal? I don't think they take it. I don't think they take it seriously enough. Uh, it's um, one of those things that they, in the back of their mind, they know that, but somehow they've they've never taken the time really to quantify that. Uh, and uh, and when you don't. Uh, try to analyze it or be prepared to um, per, to defend your you know your decision if someone is badly hurt by it. Um, but I know I don't think they do. There aren't a ton of names mentioned in the book, but one person you do mention and praise is Tim Hires. What do you remember about walking into his maintenance facility at Old Collier for the first time? Oh uh, well, first of all, Tim I consider to be one of the geniuses of. In the, in the golf course uh, superintendent profession. And the reason is is that Tim is always thinking. He's always looking at things and saying, is there a way to make it better? And he has a real concern for the people who work for him, as well as his members and his guests. And I remember the, one of the first things in walking into Tim's uh, facility was the fact that there uh, was very wide uh, quarters and spaces, everything was very neat, uh, the, the, even to the point of rounding corners uh, on desk and things like that uh, that were impressive. Then when Tim gives you a tour of his storage areas and his work areas and how people sign in and out and, and the, uh, the, the training that they're giving, uh, I just was uh, saying, you know, Tim is sort of a one-stop source if you want good information on, on safety. Uh, he's, he's built a career on, on really trying to not only produce great golf turf, but also a very safe golf work environment. Let's face it, anyone that goes to a lot of golf courses sees some maintenance facilities that are gruesome. How do you convince your ownership or members that there's serious risk at your maintenance area when it's not something they see every day? Boy, that's really, really a good question, and it is very difficult, um, you know, sort of out of sight, out of mind. And um, unfortunately, many times, Guy, it requires having some sort of an accident that before people wake up to, to that situation. Uh, I used to teach an eight-hour class uh, for the golf course superintendents on golf course safety, security, and risk management. When we taught it regionally, we would go to a country club or to a public course, because uh, I always asked to have it taught at the golf course, and then we'd spend 
six hours in class, and we would take the last two hours, and we would go down to the maintenance facility, and the class would sort of analyze the maintenance facility through their eyes, having just spent six hours with me talking about uh, safety, security, and risk management. And it was a little bit embarrassing for the superintendent uh, to have, you know, 20 or 30 other people criticizing his operation, but in the same way, those folks knew, and I always warned them ahead of time, so it wasn't like, you know, we uh, embarrassed them to death, but uh, I told him what might happen. But they were usually willing to do that because they knew that if someone went to their shop or went to their facility, they would probably find lots of things that would be considered safety problems as well. And, um, and so it is very, very difficult. And if you have a functioning safety committee, then that safety committee is the place where you bring those issues up. And they have the power to recommend those changes. And so what you're doing is you're transferring that risk to whoever your boss is. And bosses don't like risk. Uh, so instead of you having to assume the risk on your own um, because you haven't brought it to anybody's attention, when you elevate it up the chain, things tend to get done. Does safety have the potential to sell a project for a superintendent or architect or general manager? I guess is there an R is there a way to quantify the ROI of safety like there is for player retention and player attraction? Yes, and it's getting more so every day. With the uh, health care crisis um, in, in America, the cost of health care, the cost of people being uh, off work, uh, the, the, the greater uh, regulation of workplace incidents, yes, safety is becoming a very big part of being a manager at any level. And what's, as I suggested earlier, this isn't a topic that's taught in turf management school. And so you have to learn that. And as you move up those roles, your ability to safely uh, manage the resources that are given to you, which includes not only equipment and chemicals and, and um, uh, natural resources, but manpower uh, becomes very, very, very important. And again, a functioning safety committee and a good employee training program goes a long way. Our Canadian friends are light years ahead of us, and it's been mandated by government, but I think everybody respects the fact that um, it's probably a much safer work environment in, uh, on a Canadian golf course today than there was, you know, uh, 20 years ago. What technology has surfaced in the last 5, 10 to 15 years that would help a operator or a superintendent minimize risks on their golf course? Well, certainly the Internet and uh, would be one of those things that where you could get information or share information. Uh, I don't know that there's any magical um, piece of equipment or app that you can get, maybe cameras, security cameras, certainly, a, uh, you know, cell phones have, have helped or radios, uh, but I really think it's a matter of having a mindset uh, of safety, security, and risk management and constantly looking, like Tim hires, uh, for ways to improve the, the, the safety of, of your um, the facility that you're charged with. And um, 
I, um, I don't think that there's any, any magic bullet other than preparedness and having a functioning safety committee. I, I'm sounding like a broken record now guy and, and harping on that, but so few people use them, and they're so effective, and they cost almost nothing. Uh, so it, it really is worth investigating what can I do to make myself a better superintendent by improving the safety of my facility. Okay, this is the best question for any author when they're on a podcast or a radio or television interview. Where can people find the book and buy the book? Well, uh, I, uh, I self-published this book because, believe it or not, I, I, even though this is my seventh book, I sent it to publishers that I had used before, and none of them were interested in it. And so I decided to self-publish it. So uh, I have copies of the book. If someone contacts me, the cost is $65 um, postpaid in the United States. If I send it to Canada, you know, it's 70 bucks because uh, the shipping is more. Uh, but I have the book, and you can just drop me an email. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find it at Mike, M-I-K-E, at Herdson, my last name, golf, uh, at herdsongolf.com. And um, I, uh, I don't, because this is a self-published book, if somebody will just send me a check or uh, I, um, I don't do credit cards is what I guess I'm saying. Send me, you know, if it's cash or a check or a money order, any of that works. Um, I'm, I'm not in the book business yet, although I'm certainly considering it based on all of the extra books that I have and that uh, I'd certainly like to be able to share those with. So that's how you get contact me through the email or write me. Just send a check and I'll be happy to. Autograph the book if you like and send it out. When does work on your eighth book start? <laughs> you know what? Ron Witten and I have dis- discussed that. And uh, we actually, uh, there are two books that um, I think I will take the lead authorship on and work with Ron to uh, probably edit one of them and contribute to the other one. But uh, I've already thought about the, the next two books that I want to do. And we have one more that we've been working with a watercolor artist in Columbus, Ohio, named Sam Ingwerson. And Sam is a, a gifted man when it comes to watercolors. He loves golf. Sam's in his 90s, and um, he has this theory of golf, um, which is interesting, in that he believes that we have worked so hard to beautify golf courses that we've actually endangered it by raising the price and, um, and uh, the, the amount of resources that we use and that... that um, we have taken what was sort of a, a very simple game played very on very simple land, and we have magnified it to the point now where we've made it uh, too expensive and and uh, too time consuming, and a lot of other things. So I'm trying to help Sam get that book out as well. But uh, it's a little slow on that one, but certainly the other two books I hope to have out within the next two years. Dang, I don't know how you get all this done. But you do it, and you do it quite well. Dr. Herdson, thank you so much for joining the podcast, and, and thank you for writing the book, and thank you for everything you do for golf course industry and everybody else in the golf industry. I know we all appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. You're a very kind guy, and I appreciate you taking enough interest in the book to allow me to be on uh, this podcast with you.